Hi, and welcome to Mind the Shift, a podcast about a shifting world and shifting minds. My name is Anders Bolling. There are doctors without borders, reporters without borders, teachers without borders, engineers without borders. So why not voters without borders? I have long wondered why the campaigns for the, for, for the elections to the European Parliament still are so nationally centered when the whole point is to solve common problems and to look beyond the nation state. The EU is a unique and in many ways wonderful attempt to move us away from suffocating nationalism, a project which is as enormously large as it is underestimated, I think. Then I discovered Volt. My guest today is Valerie Sternberg, co-president of Volt, founded three years ago as the first pan-European party, creating politics for a federal Europe across European borders. Welcome to the show, Valerie. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. You are German, but you have also studied in Italy and you have studied in the United Kingdom and you have worked in Belgium. So you, you really qualify as a true pan-European, don't you? Yeah, I think I, uh, I truly represent the Erasmus generation and I'm really lucky to have had the, have had the opportunities to study abroad in, in Europe and uh, yeah, have a good time during traineeships and really experience a lot of uh, culture and European language that, that we have to offer on this continent. Yeah, great. Uh, so when... Uh, when you are, uh, when people ask you, what do you define yourself as? Do you say, oh, I'm German or I'm European or maybe something else? Um, I think if I truly look inside me, I identify mostly as a European, but also um, as being from the area where I grew up, which is near Frankfurt am Main and in, in the center of Germany. So I would identify as a Hesse and as a European. However, to be honest, when I am abroad and I'm asked, where, where are you from? I say I am German because oh. uh, for some reason, this seems to still be the categories that we and everyone thinks of and that what actually uh, we are interested in. And um, so, so there's this, this clash. I know. Yeah, I have the same experience. But I still, I mean, I don't, I'm, I'm from Sweden, but I don't want to be defined as a Swedish person I want to be defined as a human being as myself of course but then it's a fact that I've grown up in Sweden so but people have so many connotations around nation states and nationalities don't they it's a problem absolutely and I find that um, by having had the opportunity due to Erasmus and also obviously um, being a a child of uh, Schengen so really don't really having really uh having not really had experienced the european internal borders um i feel like i really had the opportunity to to discover europe's diversity and also discover more about myself so really uh, i'm i'm such a um uh, really, I, I'm very passionate about the Italian language, and I'm, I'm, uh, I sometimes feel like, why did I not, you know, why was I not born as Italian? Because I okay. really feel so home in this language, but also there's so many other parts. So, um, yeah, I mean, why? You speak fluent Italian? I, I did. I feel like I'm a bit rusty uh, after okay. five years of using it less, but yes, I did. Great. Well, your English is excellent, so you're polyglot or multilingual anyway 
which is very su suiting for your <laughs> what you're doing now. Um, okay, so let's let's dive a bit into this big project of yours, Vault. It was founded in in 2017, right? Yes, right after the Brexit yeah. referendum. Okay, so how large has it grown? This Europe-wide party grown so far, if you have any definitions of it. Sure. Um, so we are represented in over 20 countries in Europe. Um, that obviously, uh, I mean, it varies where because sometimes teams are very small, for example, in the Baltic countries, but we are um, really represented in the north and the south and the east and in the west. We have now 16 registered national parties because, as you know, you cannot just be a European party. You have to be able, uh, you have to, to, to be able to run for elections, you have to uh, register as national parties. And we have around 300 city teams, which is really how we organize ourselves locally and then European. Okay, yeah, well, that's the, that's the thing that you have to, in order to start a party that wants to run for the European elections, it has to be national. It's a paradox. Absolutely. And it's, it doesn't only have to be national, but there's actually um, all these um, differences in, uh, you know, in electoral requirements of um, how you're able to run for elections and then how uh, many votes you actually need to enter the European Parliament. So, um, for example, uh, while in Germany, we had to be actually um, an we had to register as a political party in the Netherlands. We didn't. Um, um, while we had to collect 4,000 signatures in Germany, uh, we had to collect 150,000 in Italy. Uh, sorry. And also we didn't have to register as a party in Italy. We had, we had to register as a party in, in the Netherlands. Um, but like there are so many differences in party laws, which actually apply at the national level, but um, also apply for the European elections, uh, which was a huge hurdle and what, which is something that you're not aware of. Um, we actually entered the European Parliament coming uh, from, from the German side. So with 0.7% uh, of the vote in Germany, we were able to enter the Parliament in um, the Netherlands. We got triple, um, triple uh, the percentage of that. Many, yeah. yeah. And we didn't enter. So you can see it's, you know, there's, uh, there's a lot of challenges that, that need to be tackled in order to have a true European representation. Yeah, but so Volt has now one, one representative in the European Parliament. Yes, exactly. Damien Brüsselager um, now represents uh, us in the European Parliament. Uh, we ran back then in eight European countries, um, were successful in Germany. Um, we had uh, we had 500,000 votes across Europe, and we can really proudly say, I think now that he's the first uh, member of the European Parliament who really represents a European movement and party. Okay, so maybe I should have asked this before the, this this question, but anyway, let's go back a little bit to where you started. Uh, working for this project. It started in 2017 and you were one of the first uh, persons working with it, uh, creating this project, I understand. And there was, you had an aha moment that made you, made you decide to join Vault. Can you, can you tell a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. So um, I had just finished my master's and I was um, basically, I guess like everyone else, uh, 
starting to looking for a job and working on my applications. Um, but finishing, finishing my master's, I, um, the, the, the Brexit referendum basically happened and I was shocked. Um, so it actually happened while I was uh, studying in, in Bath in England and um, I was visiting my family over the weekend and I went to, went to bed when uh, on the, on the, I guess it was a Sunday or so when it happened, uh, when the referendum was held. And I woke up the next morning to catch a flight from Frankfurt to, to London. And I woke up with a push notification um, saying your flight was canceled and a push notification saying uh, Britain is going to leave the EU. And I was <laughs> really shell-shocked because, you know, I had just turned off my phone and not even expected the results of the referendum because I was so sure that they were just going to stay in the EU. Yeah. So I think this was an aha moment for me that, I had to do something, but I really did not have a clue at all what that was. And then a few months later, a friend of mine forwarded me um, a really um, a, a website where there was not much on, but um, the, you know, the name Volt and uh, with, with the mission to create the first pan-European party and movement in Europe and um, kind of, and then a little bit more detail to that. And that uh, kind of really, appealed to me and I just jumped in. Great. Yeah. So Brexit was the trigger. Brexit was absolutely the trigger. And I think it was, uh, it was the trigger for all the people that were part of the founding team and who were, who were, you know, really organizing themselves across or started to organize themselves across Europe and were hmm. uh, part of that initial. Interesting. Cause, yeah. Yeah, it was a shocker, wasn't it? I mean, even for me and for, for, for so many people, of course, when Brexit happened, you couldn't really believe it. It was, uh... and I think I, I said at the time, well, later that year, of course, Trump won the elections in the United States and everybody has been talking about Brexit and Trump, Brexit is, and Trump as, as if those are two, two events that changed the politics of the world, changed the situation in the Western world. Uh, which which they did, of course. But I, I said at the time that I think Brexit is worse than Trump because Trump is only there for four or maybe eight years, but but Brexit is is uh, forever. Uh, I'm not sure how that's going to go, actually. But we can let's come back to that later. It's really interesting what's happening in the United Kingdom and or this these negotiations between the UK and the EU. So. Volt started and Volt grew and Volt is now a force, uh, which is still a bit small, but it's, it's growing and it's really fascinating that you exist, I think. It's, it's, it's in my view, very commendable. So maybe uh, you can explain a little bit more to us what the party stands for. It says on the website that Volt is progressive and pragmatic. So that sounds sympathetic in my ears and many, many others persons' ears perhaps. But to many, it may seem a bit contradictory. Can you can you explain what does that mean? Progressive and pragmatic. Sure. So first of all, we believe that only Europe that acts together can solve our shared challenges. Um, we we really believe in empowering people to change politics and and unlock Europe's potential together. And I think this is um, this is the this is the progressive part. Of, of our identity. Um, we, want, we want a Europe that provides equal opportunities for everyone, 
that goes beyond sustainability, where, you know, we are not just looking into sustainably exploiting or using our resources, but where we are looking and also giving something back to um, our planet. Um, and we really believe in everyone's potential um, and uh, believe that we need to enable everyone to make something of themselves to achieve their own individual goods, but also to enable them to be part um, of the, you know, to be part of shaping the larger common good. Um, and I think this is, uh, yeah, actually potentially part of our vision. And I guess this is what we mean with being progressive. We mean that we need a vision. We need to be future oriented. We need to uh, give each other the tools that we need to, to stand up uh, for or to, to be able to survive in a future world. Um, pragmatic means that we, we want to know who we are. We really, we, really, um, we really work hard on finding our values and our principles and on our vision for the future. But we are equally, um, let's say, aware that you probably sometimes have to make sacrifices and there and that democracy lives out of consensus and that democracy lives out of conversation and compromise and finding a middle ground. And I think this is the pragmatic part of it. So um, yes, we need to identify when do we want to basically push our head through the wall because the principle that we stand up for is so important that we just need to do it. But in the end, most of the time, democracy lives of conversation and the narrative that is being fed into you know kind of the kind of society and, and politics and um and uh yeah this is the pragmatic part of us yeah. yeah okay when you describe your progressive part there you sound a little bit like the green parties in a way uh do you think would you would you place yourself would you place your party on the left-right scale or on the gal-tan scale, you know, this, this other scale that is, I don't know if it's, that's the abbreviation in English actually, but on the scale between maybe the green liberal side and the more traditional conservative side, there, there are two scales, you know, the traditional left-right and the, the more modern other kind of scale. Would you place your party on, on any of those scales or is it, is it completely free of, of the old uh, ideologies? Great question. Um, we really try to free ourselves from the old ideologies. So um, we might be talking about this uh, a little bit later on, but we somehow believe that because we're still stuck in old ideologies and we're still stuck in kind of the old party lines, you know, kind of the employee and employer divide and, and um, um, you know, green, anti-green, uh, that's really where politics is stuck and therefore doesn't manage to think anymore ahead and create a, create kind of an environment that um, gets us ready for the future. Um, mm. And so I think um, we, we want to go beyond that and we, we uh, stand for a mix of being a movement. So actually living a new identity, but also um, really, um, yeah, 
drawing new lines. And I think here uh, a lot plays into, you know, what are the trends of tomorrow? The trends are climate change and migration that will really, uh, you know, have a huge impact on us as uh, European societies and, and obviously the, the rest of the world. So how do we how do we tackle that? Do we tackle that together or do we tackle that and alone? So it's potentially more a internationalist and isolation and isolationist approach. Um, yeah, I think I'll mm -hmm. stop here for now. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what does it stand for? Volt. I didn't ask that before. Uh, it's it's just a creative name. We uh, yeah. we wanted something that is sort of equally pronounced across European countries uh, or in, in all the different languages, and uh, and then we wanted not just an abbreviation because we thought that was rather boring, and we wanted something that we thought okay, you know, energizes and with Volt everyone thinks like of energy. Mm, okay, yeah. Well, I, I guess that Volt is a good word if you want everyone in Europe, in Europe be able to pronounce it in more or less the same way as opposed to the, the currency, Euro, the Euro, which is pronounced in different ways, but that's inevitable, of course. But it's funny, in, in, my, in the country where I live, I, sh I shouldn't say my country, the country where I live, Sweden, people have a tendency of uh, anglifying things. So they, <laughs> they actually pronounce the currency Euro, not not everyone, but m most people, I think, would say say euro instead of euro or euro, which would be more natural for Sweden. Yeah, it's really interesting. And in German, it's euro. Yeah. Euro, yeah, it's euro, and in Spain and Italy, it's euro, and in 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 France, it's euro. Mm -hmm. But Swedes say euro. I don't I don't know why. It's because it's, they're so impressed with English. Maybe <laughs> it's only four million people in the euro area who actually speak English. It's the Irish. Everyone else speaks some other language. Anyway, that's a side sidetrack. Uh, you have six core goals, don't you? Six basic goals that, well, at least on the on the website, Volt's website, you can find six goals. The five plus one challenges. Is this what you? Maybe it is. I don't know. I just I, I call them goals here, but maybe maybe you call them challenges. We we can maybe you can walk us through them uh, one by one. I have them here. The first one is smart state. So uh, yeah, if you just br briefly can explain. Uh, Absolutely. So the uh, when we were founded, and I think this is um, this is very interesting. Which uh, also there, like the thought process is a different one. I think than uh, you know. I guess most parties were kind of most parties now in the political systems in Europe probably emerged you know, after the Second World War, maybe a little bit later, there was some reform. Um, we tried to completely free ourselves here from, um, let's say, how other parties do it. Also because obviously Europe is so diverse that um, refer references are uh, very diverse as well. But we really tried to think in future challenges. Um, what are the challenges that unite us across Europe that we need to tackle and where we need to define um, shared goals while leaving room for the specific kind of the, the situation in each country where there is that is special, that is different across countries where we also potentially need to have, you know, an array of answers rather than having the one truth. But we are all kind of buying into the same goal. So 
uh, smart state uh, was born out of the idea that our administration um, is hmm, across Europe, not where it should be. Uh, okay. So it's, uh, sorry, I just needed a sip of glass. Sure. Um, yeah, so it's really born out of the idea that um, education and digitization come way too short. Um, our uh, sorry, our public administrations aren't aren't as digital as they could be and should be, um, and by that are, are way less efficient and transparent and accessible for most people as they should be. Mm -hmm. So this is a large pillar of smart state education as well because we think education is super fundamental um, for society, obviously, and mm. for the future. And uh, currently, our educative systems obviously vary a lot. But um, and I guess especially the Scandinavian countries are generally really praised of, of their, um, you know, very, very good educative or education systems. However, we think that to be able to be ready for the future, a lot still has to change. For example, soft skills should be having this, should have the same level as hard skills. We don't just need to have no hard facts, but we need to know how to learn. We need to, we need to, we need to actually get to know ourselves. We need to be able to creative, to reinvent ourselves and everything around us. So we are ready for a future that might look so different in 50 years than what we can even imagine now. And this is the tools that we should be giving our kids um, so yeah this mm. is uh, kind of an education revolution and digitization of public administration economic renaissance um, yeah that's number two economic renaissance yes second challenge um, there is a lot in there um, it's a lot about innovation and also there we um, you know there yeah um, there's a, I guess there's, it, it surrounds around two key goals. So on the one hand, we say, let's leave no one behind, you know, let's, um, let's create a social welfare system that ensures that no one is left behind and that um, kind of everyone has equal opportunities um, in, in Europe. On the other hand, let's be innovative. And for innovation, we need entrepreneurs. So let's make it very easy to be entrepreneurs. Let's create a one-stop shop, for example, uh, to set up a company and, uh, and reduce administration, which, for example, if you look at Germany, is crazy. <laughs> I don't mm. know about uh, Sweden, but here it, is, it really takes a long time. Okay. So mm. innovation while also creating a baseline for, for an equal society. <clears throat> Social equality um, yeah. has been a very important part for us. It's the third challenge. Mm. <clears throat> um, it's about saying no to discrimination, any form, <clears throat> and going beyond that, um, creating a society that is totally equal, where it doesn't matter which gender or income or religion or origin <clears throat> you're from. Yeah. Well, that goes, goes very well together with parts of the economic renaissance that you were talking about. Yes, and, um, mm -hmm. and we do really think that an equal society in the end is the absolute <clears throat> baseline for, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> to live in a, to live a, or, to have a society that is able to grow and where everyone mm. has, you know, even, even 
people that um, do have privileges in the end are not as well off when, you know, when the weakest part of society is not well off. So we can mm. all be stronger if everyone has the same chances and opportunities. Global yeah. balance is our fourth challenge. And it is what I've been talking about earlier. It's actually about the global challenges that we are facing, whether migration or climate change. And really saying Europe needs to take responsibility proactively, um, actively um, on world stage and ideally find global solutions. And if that's not possible, at least uh, European and then potentially, you know, find cooperation outside. Is that those two, are those two issues the, the, the ones that you want to focus on under that uh challenge migration and climate change or are you also talking about other kinds of global challenges like like poverty eradicating poverty and things like that and uh, enhancing health worldwide um or is that not part of your what you were yeah that would be part of it too um what is kind of the the role of europe in um yeah, making the world a better place as well. Um, yeah. Although we also, you can also find that a little bit in our plus one or our sixth challenge, which is a EU reform. So <clears throat> how can we find a, create a Europe that takes responsibility outside of the EU? Okay, so our fifth challenge is citizen empowerment. And here it is really about empowering people to become part of politics um, to make them feel like <clears throat> and not only feel but to actually give them a voice and to actually empower them to become active in politics so in a sense it is about creating a more participatory democracy um, whether it be through citizen councils or um, through other means um, that is the concrete proposal uh, and here yeah. Um, the last challenge the plus, the plus one yeah. yes exactly it's called the plus one EU reform challenge because um, for the other challenges we defined shared goals um, but all of these chapters are nationally applied so um, <clears throat> they're nationally derived in a way that um, they can be adapted to the national circumstances and obviously there we have a big variety of um, political systems and economic systems and uh, whatever. So we need to, we need to see how it fits. Um, and so there our policy proposals can be adapted while buying into the same goal. EU reform is unchangeable. It's the same chapter across all our European chapters. Okay. Yeah. And uh, this challenge is really very technical, actually. <laughs> um, mm. While the vision is one that we don't see the EU as an end in itself. We think that we are big believers in the EU because we think it's the best vehicle, the best means to achieve our vision of the society that, that we kind of would like to create. And we think that the EU has been a... Um, a great project that has ensured peace for over 70 years now, where um, all the past generations have put significant amount of energy and time and thought into um, to create this project of collaboration of um, shared values and principles or yeah, 
you know, coming to, to consensus of what these are and how, how they should be promoted. And rather than destroying the whole project while recognizing the, the flaws it has, we think that we need to tackle the flaws and make it better than it is now. And this is what is behind your reform. So it goes from, for example, a specific topic would be really reforming the European Council. Why is the most powerful body in the European Union the national heads of state and government when we actually have um, elected representatives that are sitting in the European Parliament um, mm. that are the direct, basically, that are directly voted by us? Mm. And of course, obviously, you need you, you need to you need the EU to reform the the ways that people vote for the European Parliament so that uh, we can have pan-European parties. Yeah, no, um, I'm happy to, to dive deeper into that. So, I mean, yes, absolutely. We need to, we need to, uh, we need to change the way um, the electoral um, <clears throat> uh, elections are organized and the, the um, electoral requirements are harmonized across the EU. We need to... Um, change its institutions and make them truly representative and uh, change them in a way that it's not a haggling of national interests at the EU level where the strongest uh, representative of basically of, of a state or government wins, but mm. it's about putting on a truly European lens and not a national and coming to, you know, maybe differently put what is currently happening. We have our national we have our national representatives that coming to, that come together at the European level, that um, that represent the national interests, and then try to find the minimum consensus. We think it can be much bigger than that if we put on a European lens, and uh, you know we come to an understanding. Okay, what is best for everyone, for kind of a European public sphere, for our European society? Because um, then it's not only the minimal consensus. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the crunch problem, the, the big, big issue with the whole European Union system, with, which is run by nation states. Um, but there have been so many EU reforms over the years, as you know, uh, the European Constitution. Well, it's not called a constitution, but the, uh, what's, what's the word for it? <laughs> I forgot. The treaty. The treaty, sorry. Yeah, the treaty, yeah. the European Union treaty. Has been changed many times, but but in your eyes, it hasn't been changed in the right direction, then, or um, at least not ambitiously enough. And I think it's completely clear because currently, still, um, we legitimize the European project to function via the our national representatives. But mm. <clears throat> to make it truly democratic, we need to reform it in a way that the European citizens have the say in what direction yeah, yeah. it takes. There is a lot of talk uh, these days about a renewed uh, nationalism, not only in Europe, but, but uh, not least in Europe. Do you think that the citizens of Europe are ready to start feeling more European than, say, French, Polish, Swedish or Portuguese? Um, I think it's a process. I think... Um, there is readiness there, but um, in the end, it's <clears throat> a process that you, you need, in order to identify with something, you need to, to know what with. And for that, you need an image and you need to have um, <clears throat> a shared 
a shared vision, a shared narrative with people, um, a sense of belonging. And I think this is actually <clears throat> one of the major problems of the European Union that we don't have a leadership that provides us with a narrative and a vision that we can all follow and that gives us but a sense of belonging. But do we need a leadership to, to, to show us that? Don't, doesn't <clears throat> don't those things uh, arise from, from the floor, so to speak? I mean, I'm looking at younger people like yourself today are studying across borders and working across borders. Maybe it's happening organically from, from the ground, so to say. Yeah, I don't think with leadership, I necessarily mean only one person, but I think at least a group of people that provides us with a picture. And I think usually, yes, you do need, um, you, you do need that in the, in the office of uh, the yeah. European Union. And not only the EU flag wavings, but you need more, more than that. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, um, uh, talking about the people and, and the citizens and, and who they are, when I hear, there are quite a few movements out there that talk about we and them, you know, there's a lot of, we, there's a lot of talk about polarization in general, but not least when it comes to uh, the division between the so-called people and, and, and the leaders. And when I hear about projects that say that they represent the people, the we I always get a bit suspicious because I think when I hear those things, those projects, hear about those projects, I think I, I think to myself, who are the we actually, and who are the they? Uh, I mean, can I be? A rep I, I, I've been working as a journalist for, for for decades. Am I they or am I we? <laughs> do I do I am I part of the the leadership or the elite or or am I not? I think it's a bit. Uh, I don't know. Well, anyway. That's, that's just my basic uh, thought here. Here comes the question. Volt, as far as I can see, and I can understand the whole thing, you, Volt doesn't really have quite that approach, has it? I mean, you, you do include the members of the European Parliament, after all, in, in the we, if that's what you want to refer to. And, uh, and uh, you are represented yourself in the EP. So that, is this a thing that you have, the we and they, or is it not? The us and the we, uh, or the we and the them, and the, <clears throat> the, it, it's something that's almost intrinsic in politics. Yeah. Um, and it's hard to step out of that <clears throat> in terms of communication, um, in terms of dynamics, because I guess this is how people function. Um, because people need to <clears throat> know who they belong to. And often it's defined in the other way around, right? They don't only know, they don't necessarily know who they are, but they want to know who they are not. <laughs> yeah, in a sense. Yeah. Um, so I think that from a maybe political theory perspective is quite interesting, but what yeah. Volt really aims for <clears throat> is to make politics more accessible. So to not just be a party, and represented in parliaments, like with Damien in the European Parliament, but to also <clears throat> have the ambition to be a movement and be close to people. Um, meaning that with us, you don't have to be a party member to become active in our movement. You, you can subscribe as a volunteer or simply follow us and, and help with whatever you have to help with. So mm. <clears throat> to make it specific, on the one hand, we run electoral campaigns. So we, we ran last year for the European elections and there we needed 
just help us obviously to to flood the streets and to talk with people and to tell them who we are and why we need a vision of Europe and why for that to achieve we need a European party um, the same just two weeks ago in the in the local elections in NIV <clears throat> where we actually achieved five percent over five percent in one of the cities which uh, was a really great success for us but on the other hand we are a movement and um, we do initiatives like Europe Cares, hashtag Europe Cares, which is our current um, basically volunteer project where voters and simply supporters of Volt all over Europe um, come together to, to send relief and send goods and send help to the refugee camps on the Greek islands and Lesbos, mm. for Moria camp, for Samos camp and so on. Okay. Um, and so we think that this hybrid basically making you know almost being a, also almost providing a platform for activism for hands-on politics for really you know doing things that you believe in um we think that needs to go hand in hand with politics and the parliaments because politics and parliaments is slow so of course we need to change <clears throat> migration rules in the european parliament with damien and we need to have a vision and a you know, way improved rules in, in Europe and uh, and nationally to <clears throat> create a fair and humane asylum system. However, this will take years. And the yesterday, for example, the commission actually released their proposal, which is rather unambitious or at least not ambitious enough for us. Um, and to basically help right now on the ground, we create activism projects like Europe Cares. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was going to ask about this um, this uh, proposal from the commission, from Ilva Johansson, the commissioner, uh, as you said, the day before we record this, that was released. Uh, it's a proposal still, but it's, as far as I understand, it means that the, the countries that do want to to take, take refugees to accept uh, a number of refugees can do that. Are allowed to do that um, freely of course but those who don't want they don't have to but they will the only thing that they're required to do is to to help uh, sending back the others the ones that are not allowed in so to speak which seems a bit like <laughs> uh, just uh, i don't know it doesn't sound very it doesn't sound like solidarity in my ears but maybe that's the only way to to to, to solve this this thing with a, f a handful of countries you're refusing to accept any refugees at all well <clears throat> i think from a commission perspective um it's sad because i think the commission could have come up with a more ambitious proposal because now it's going to go to the countries anyways to the european council and so on to mm. parliament and it will be watered down there anyway so why not mm. just come in with a more ambitious proposal in the first place um, if we look at European values, then I think it really doesn't live up to that because, mm, and that's obviously not the fault of the commission, but rather the <clears throat> member states who, well, who actually don't commit anymore to uphold European values. So we are in a club of European values and principles. Uh, we are a union of values, how we say, but actually we are not. So as you say, a solidarity comes way too short within the European Union. Speaking of the proposal, as I understand it from a superficial first glance, because it was only uh, released yesterday uh, afternoon, um, it looks like 
yes, we have distribution keys, but if people, uh, countries do not want to take um, asylum seekers, as you say, um, they don't have to, and they don't really face any consequences. But I think this is not how a team works, how a club works. Like if you are part of a team, you cannot just say, oh, I take myself out of here. Um, you know, I, I, I eat with you and I get all the benefits that we get as a team, but I don't want to contribute anything. And so I think here we as the European Union and all the other countries, we have to really beef up and trim more teeth because in the end, um, solidarity is what keeps us together in the European Union and it's what will kind of be reflected outside as well. And the only reason why the European borders at this point are unhumane and it's absolutely tragic to see what is happening at our European borders. In my opinion, the reason, the only reason for that is a lack of solidarity and a lack of um, being strong together, you know, making, mm -hmm. coming up with strong proposals together and being a, being a team with high ambitions. Um, mm. Yeah. I've spoken to experts on migration and, and well, migration and, and the refugee situations is partly different things, but, but migration is the general term for people moving from one country to another. And there, there is a large stream of uh, migrants uh, moving from, for instance, the Middle East and Africa towards Europe, for, uh, as, as we are talking about now. And they, these experts say, not at uh, least Hein de Haas, a, a Dutchman who has studied these things for decades. Uh, I interviewed him for the podcast. And he said that one of the problems is that when you close borders very harshly, then the, the pressure increases, so to speak. And when, when migrants enter, they manage to enter the, the country that they are longing for, that they want to go to, they never go back. But if the borders are more porous, more open, there is a natural circular migration. So people move into work for a while. And when, then the, when the, the labor market gets worse, uh, the economy goes down, then they go back to their countries because they don't have any jobs anymore. So it's more of a natural movement back and forth, back and forth. And it's not that dramatic, but it's, it gets ever more dramatic, the more, the, the, the more difficult it is to enter the, for instance, the Schengen area. It's the same in the United States between Mexico and the United States. So the reason why the United States has 11 or 12 million illegal Mexicans in the country is because they, I mean, they entered legally, but then they never left because they knew that if they go back to Mexico, they would never be able to, to re-enter, if you see what I mean. So do you have any, does Voltas have any particular suggestions or proposals in that respect when it comes to how to monitor the, the external border and how, how open it should be and how how we should deal with these people that will inevitably for decades to come try to move here because they need jobs because that's, I mean, that's the main driving force for migration. It's, it's the labor market and it's always been like that. Doesn't it very, has have very much to do with refugee situations actually. Do you have any proposals for that? Um, yeah. So I'm certainly not the migration expert from our party, um, which would be Damien, but I'll, I'll try myself. And I think um, maybe, uh, certainly employment is uh, a big part um, of creating uh, migration or movement. Um, but I think in the future, a big factor will also be climate change. So climate migration, climate migrants, um, 
will be a big challenge of tomorrow because as climate change proceeds, um, certain parts of this earth will simply become uninhabitable. So um, it's simply a reality we also cannot deny and we need to face. And we cannot just say, oh, you know, we close our borders and then the problem doesn't exist anymore because it does. And as a European Union, not only also from moral stand ground, but also from stand ground of, you know, being a contributing force to what the global affairs look like, we cannot just retreat in European isolationism. So I think um, my first answer would be yes. So it has to, I think migration has to be in the future looked at from a global perspective and the European Union should definitely take an active role in, um, you know, how how we are going to approach this issue. Mm. Um, on the other hand, um, I think we have, there are different parts here. I think there is the one part, um, we actually have labor shortage in certain areas. We actually need people in Europe in, in, in a lot of areas in order for a lot of skills and so on. Um, so um, we need to provide the corridors and the, and, and the ways to, for people to, to come in and bring their skills also into the European Union, that is also required. Um, on the other hand, I think it's it's really also about um, taking on responsibility within the countries. So working on the root causes of migration, which, which if it's apart from climate change, where I guess then there, <laughs> um, in the in the countries as such, then you can't really do much. But um, go go and help there but then also um you know be clear of what can be expected of you as a um, asylum seeker in the in the european union and i think a fair and humane process of your asylum application is the least that we can do and mm. um, i think this is what due to us not really working together sometimes takes ages and um and yeah people are just left hanging in the in the loop um so i think it's a combination of many things um solidarity within the european union but also of course we need a european a shared european border force because in the end it doesn't really make sense that we currently uh tackle uh, outside european borders still rather nationally mm. okay true well, when it comes to climate refugees, I can recommend also this this episode with uh, Heinde Haas, mm -hmm. who talks uh, talks a lot about that. He says that I mean, climate change is a, is a real problem that we really have to deal with. But he doesn't. He does. He wants to stress that the the issue of climate refugees is really very much overblown uh, because well, there aren't any, and uh, there probably won't be any for for many 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 years, uh, if ever. And if you look at the numbers of people who have who are forced to move because of floods and other kinds of natural disasters, they have gone down a lot if you go back 80, 90, 100 years or even 50 years. So, I mean, millions of people died in floods in China in the 30s and uh, half a million people died in, in Bangladesh in a cyclone. In 1971, uh, that, that that doesn't happen today. So I mean, that's just that's just that's just my take on the on that issue because I'm quite interested in that that matter. That topic. It is really interesting, <clears throat> and I think, I mean, I no one of us can really look into the future, but um, 
if we, for instance, take uh, James Hansen, who's got who's foreseen climate change since the 80s, um, he compares climate change with being an asteroid uh, targeting the Earth. Mm. And currently, we haven't done anything to really redirect its course. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, well, there are I others think who, say, who say other things, but I, I know James Hansen is one one of the one of the alarmist uh, people. So, well, there are there, there's a there's an uh, array of uh, researchers saying basically the same thing, but but with different words and with different levels of, of alarmist. But maybe it's just a sidetrack. <laughs> but I think what it comes down to, and I just um, I, I think it's important that we acknowledge it in and Europe and beyond is that the effects of climate change, and this is, I think, why it's not being tackled properly yet, is they're not so much felt yet. You know, they're, yes, we see, um, we actually already see it, uh, whether it's the uh, um, <clears throat> bleaching of the coral reefs or, um, or uh, I mean, other parts where it actually becomes visible and so graspable mm. for us. A lot of it, a lot of the repercussions are not there yet. Um, but I do think, mm. I mean, since the majority of scientists say this is uh, um, this is not only real, but it's going to be real very soon, um, it is something we need to tackle with more urgency that we currently do in in Europe and especially also other parts of the world. Um, obviously, yeah. in the U.S. with Donald Trump, it's uh, it's become a disaster. Well, absolutely. Well, no one's disputing that that climate change is a real issue, and that's 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 an important one to to handle and to tackle, as you say. So you have mentioned, or we have talked about uh, climate change here, and also migration. Are those the two biggest issues that Europe has to handle right now, or are there any other big issues that you would point out? Um. So in terms of global trends, I think these two are really Im important. Um, internally, I think the rule of law is one that is um, a major threat to the current state of the European Union. So, um, Talking about countries like Poland and Hungary, for instance. Exactly. Um, mm -hmm. <clears throat> but also... Um, actually countries like Bulgaria where currently um, you know where where people are standing up against the oligarchs and corruption and clientelism and um, <clears throat> they're mm. being beaten up and uh, actually press outside of Bulgaria doesn't really report about it no um, we don't we don't read a lot about that do we yeah we don't mm -hmm. which is interesting which is why we need a European broadcaster I think <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> Yeah, uh, actually that also, because you spoke about it earlier, what can we do for people to, to feel European or do people already feel European? I think um, there is still, uh, you know, there is that part missing as well. Like we don't actually know what's going on in, our, in the other countries because broadcasting journalism is very much nationally focused still. And yeah. it also really depends on the countries how much... Um, national media presents or uh, reports on, on going on in the EU and in other countries. Um, I think mm. in Germany, it's actually quite okay, <clears throat> but actually remembering back from my time uh, in England. In Britain. Yeah. 
Yeah. Nothing. You look at the tabloids in Britain. I exactly. mean, it's no wonder they voted for Brexit. If you, if, if you imagine that all these, yeah, yeah even the, the ordinary, I mean, the so-called telegraph and everything. Yeah. yeah. I think the only one perhaps uh, being more open is the guardian. Uh, but yeah, I think that is obviously a large contribution to creating a European public sphere and with that a European identity. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, internal threads, um, I think the rule of law is, is one of these. Um, so um, during Corona, you know, Orban was basically dictator. Um, he had the, um, he has, uh, he had the ultimate authority to decide what was going to happen with his country um, and mm. not. And um, then obviously Poland advancing in, you know, minimizing um, the rule of law and, and, and jurisdiction and so on. Um, I don't think this can go on like that because we will compromise so much that in the end we will even lose uh, the knowledge of what we stand for. Um, and we also lo lose a lot of credibility inside with our own citizens, but also in the outside world, I think. Yeah. Um, Seems Other, as if Europe, the yeah. European Union is is, is a constantly in crisis, and it of, it's often said that the European Union develops through crisis. Do you think that this is uh, something that we have to live with? That, that it's, I mean, it doesn't. I mean, you can. You, I'm, I'm sure you you agree with it. It doesn't go more than one or two years bef before there's another big situation which we call a crisis, and now the Europe is in crisis again. It might be the the migrants or corona, coronavirus or the, the euro crisis or it's always something. Is it just something that we will have to live with and, and accept and just be, be fine with? Or do you think we will come to a situation where, this, where the European Union won't be in such crises anymore, that we will actually settle down and have a more calm future? Um, hmm, interesting question. I think... It depends how you see crises. <clears throat> Do you see it as something negative or something that <clears throat> something yeah, exact, exactly. new can emerge out of? Yeah, it's like that Chinese saying that the word, for, I don't know if it's, it's not a saying, it, it's, it's said that there is a Chinese sign for, um, <laughs> what is it now? I think it's the sign for possibility, which is a combination of, uh, no, wait a minute, crisis is cons consists of the two signs for uh, threat and possibility. I think it's, I don't know if it's true, but it says, it's, it is said that the Chinese uh, sign for, for crisis is a combination of threat and possibility. So that's a little bit of what you're talking about. Yeah, it summarizes it really nicely. I think what we went through during the Corona pandemic or what we experience still right now, mm. right? It's a, it's a threat, huge threat. At the same time, <clears throat> it has provided um, a lot of opportunities for our uh, development as a society. <clears throat> for example, if you take Germany, um, then, um, uh, and, and that is, I think, true for a lot of other countries in Europe as well. But I can and I can speak for the country I live in, obviously, um, in the most representative way. So, um, people and uh, no, sorry, children were sent to homeschool, and all of a sudden, uh, 
uh, had their had their uh, classes via Zoom or via other you know digital mm. tools yeah. and all of a sudden we had the courage to try out something new to mm. use um, digital platforms the digital infrastructure in a constructive and productive way that actually our children will have to learn sooner or later anyway and we mm. might have to use it anyway um, so I think a lot of times crisis uh, create the urgency to have courage and um, I think this is what we will see as well so the corona crisis was a, obviously or is a crisis that creates a lot of urgency and it really uh, shows if we have the courage or not. And I think if we actually go beyond homeschooling, the European Union showed to have courage as well. We created something like Corona Bonds. We created something like, you know, really showing solidarity with each other um, in, the, in the European Union club, kind of, and um, showed that we are watching out for each other and helping each other with uh, a significant... Uh, financial economic package uh, that is now coming um, end of this year, early next year to kickstart our economies again and really ensure that the most vulnerable of our societies are not left behind. This mm. is the strength that Europe has and which uh, was only possible to, uh, yeah, to actually um, get together because of a crisis. I think the, the other crisis you're talking about I do, again, I think it's a crisis of leadership and it's, it's something subtle. It's something not urgent. It's something mm. where it's actually fine that we manage crises usually. Um, we don't take leadership. And by managing crises, I mean, we have an amputated leg and we put on plasters. Um, but we, I think we need, uh, we need to have the courage to take leadership, to provide a vision, to really... Um, in order to achieve a Europe that is true to its values and principles, we first of all need to change the vehicle, which, as I said earlier, I think is the, is politics, is the European institutions. They are the means um, to, to, to create a prosperous and fair and equal and just society. Um, so we need to change the European institutions, make, make them more democratic, um, reduce the say of the national heads of state and government, um, just jump and see yeah. what happens. And I think what will come out of that Leap will be pretty faith. good. Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, well, I just have a couple of big questions uh, that I want to ask you. Uh, the first one is, is very concrete, but it's, all, but it's big as well. I guess, uh, and it's about Brexit. You were talking about earlier in the beginning that Brexit was the trigger for you to start working for Volt and it was the trigger for many of those of you who are working for Volt mm -hmm. as well. So uh, what do you think of it's happening now with Brexit? Is it going to happen the way the British Brexit camp thinks it will or do you have a suspicion that there is something else going to happen? I mean, Britain will still be there geographically where it is, so it, it's stuck with the rest of Europe anyway. Yeah, answer. absolutely. I mean, Boris Johnson is just a disaster, unfortunately, and it's really sad um, that uh, <clears throat> he is doing what he's doing. But um, 
I don't know about you, but I got really tired at some point to follow these discussions. Um, (laughs) It was at such a back and forth. And at some point you also really feel ridiculed as someone who's obviously a big believer in the European Union. You're like, but we had an agreement and Mm. we took you, we, we, you know, we treated you respectfully, even though you kind of, you know, turned the back to us. We treated that with respect and um, we we accepted that obviously and uh, and tried to find a an outcome that was the best um, for you and us in that specific situation and all of a sudden this agreement is no longer taking um, being taken seriously or as valid which um, I, ha- I think it has a terrible signal to what treaties mean and what agreements to us mean because mm. in the end this is this is all we have this is what you know what international law and what actually everything depends on if you have a promise made to your friend and the fr- friend and keeps the promise i mean you just lose all the trust and i think trust is the basis to all future relationship uh, with britain and um and mm. so on so i i do hope that we find uh, a shared way forward. Um, I do hope we will stick to the agreement. I do hope that Britain will not leave without a deal end of this year and not simply crash out of uh, basically the European Union after the transition time now. Um, I, I cannot predict it, but to me it looks really not so good right now. Um, which obviously from a citizen's perspective is terrible because we're left with so much uncertainty business perspective as well. Um, for European and British citizens, this will be the worst. So I do hope our governments mm. and representatives find, find a solution that mm. <laughs> will, yeah, will solve this. Um, Maybe also interesting, we, we still have a chapter. We still have a vault chapter in England or in okay. the UK. And uh, we do not intend to close it or anything. We, we will stay there. Um, we to will, the bitter Yeah, so I think our mission there will be obviously similar, but it cannot be the same as in the other countries, just like mm. us also having a small team in, in Switzerland and so on. So um, we have to accept for, um, you know, uh, varying missions <clears throat> depending mm. on where we are. And I guess ultimately Volt's dream would obviously be that Britain would be part of a united and federal and democratic Europe. If we like yeah. looked into like 50, 60 years from now, mm. that would obviously be uh, absolutely our dream. Um, but now this is not what matters. Now what matters is that people actually in the UK are also desperate. People in the UK don't know who to vote for. The two party system in the UK does not represent their people um, uh, often. So uh, I think homelessness, uh, from what I can, uh, from what I understand, and um, uh, social inequality is rising. Um, so these are actually challenges that people face on the ground, and that we are also interested in solving. So we will um, work on local issues, on issues that people 
uh, actually care about because it concerns their everyday life and their future, um, while obviously being an advocate for European values and the European Union. Hmm. Well, of course, the, uh, the, the hardcore Brexit camp uh, would see uh, a crash out of the European Union as a success. <laughs> Those are not perhaps the majority of the British people, but, but f for them, I think that would be the success. But for most Britons, uh, of course, they, they would prefer, um, as you say, a, tr a treaty to be respected. Um, on the other hand, I mean, if now if, if there is a large part of the of the British population that, that really don't want to be a part of the European Union, maybe we should just accept that and uh, let it happen. Well, that's you're not saying that we shouldn't accept it. Of course, you're just saying that this should be done in a proper way. Um, uh, yeah, I'm just and I uh, think, thinking loud. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, no, absolutely. And I think there is um, there was a lot of reasons as we heard over the of the analyses of the past years why people voted leave um, mm. I was part back then of the uh, Britain stronger in Europe campaign and uh, was walking around southwest England and handing out flyers and trying to talk with people I do have to say the level of information of uh, about the EU about the relationship between Britain and the EU back then about um, yeah, what it means to be part of the European Union was pretty minimal um, a mm. lot of times when I spoke with people. Um, so I think I don't want to reduce it to that because I'm, I'm sure it's way more complex or I know it's way more complex, but I think the level of education of um, what it means to be in the position today of an individual nation state, um, yes, the, you know, Britain has the Commonwealth and was like, has its yeah. glorious past to look back to. Yeah. But the question is, um, can, can they revive this past? And um, um, Probably not. My, <laughs> my assumption is not. <laughs> um, so I think actually from a global perspective or from a global affairs polit political perspective, it makes so much more sense to be part of an uh, to be part of such a club in the economic zone like the European Union is. But yeah, yeah. It seems to me that many, yeah, many Britons, I mean, I'm not an expert, but I've read a lot about it, of course, uh, because I'm interested. They had the, the kind of thought that leaving the European Union entailed leaving the bad things about the European Union. They still wanted the trade thing. They wanted the common market. They wanted the, the single market and, and they wanted the, um, all of those things. So they didn't want to cooperate militarily and they didn't, they didn't want to join the Euro and they didn't want to have, uh, they didn't want to join the Schengen area. But I mean, all of those things were already there because they had opted out of it. I mean, so the, the Britons were, British people were already almost not part of the European Union, but many, many British people didn't understand that. That's, that's my impression. They yeah. were kind of voting for something that wasn't really a thing. Yeah, I agree. I mean, cherry picking, obviously. Um, yeah. I think Margaret Thatcher did a good start with that. I, I believe it was her who. <laughs> yeah, she, she. I want my money back. So they didn't even um, have to pay that much to the budget. And also, a really interesting and flawed understanding of sovereignty. I mean, what does sovereignty mean? And exactly. do we really, yeah. are we really able to reclaim sovereignty by um, creating the nation state? prior 
um, the existence of the <clears throat> European Union. Mm. Um, I would challenge that because mm. I don't think Britain will have the sovereignty or will regain their definition of sovereignty because simply because of multilateral trade and because mm. of um, the rising power of China and India and um, and how how these uh, geopolitical shifts are going to develop. Um, Britain will not be the the sovereign and be able to just advance their own individual goals. Um, but no. yeah. And of course, nobody knows what's going to happen in a year or two years or 10 years or 20 years or even next 15 minutes. So perhaps the Brit Brits, uh, the British people wants, want to join the European Union again in a, in a few years. Who knows? Anything can happen. So it's, it's all open. It's all on the table. But anyway, what you just said, yeah, <laughs> what you just said is a segue over to my last question, which is big. Uh, I had this interesting uh, conversation the other day with uh, an Irishman, a philosophical Irishman who started a, a movement for uh, a moneyless world. He's called Colin Turner. Uh, a world without money. So that was really interesting. And what about a borderless world? Is that a vision that you even dare to to uh, uh, to have, or is it is it too far? Is it too far out? Too far fetched? Wow! Yeah. Um, After it Europe, sounds great. <laughs> Yeah, because I mean, nation states, uh, the, the, those are a product of the, the 19th century and uh, it's all very old. I mean, th does it really have to be this way? Forever? I guess even older, right? I think in my... Um, it's even older, of course. The Westphalian yeah, I mean, Treaty. The, mm -hmm. um, no, I mean, I didn't want to uh, correct or anything. It's just that, interestingly, having studied in Münster, this is, I think, where the Westphalian Treaty was signed, I remember. I think sometime okay. in the 17th okay. century or something, if I'm not mistaken. I don't, I don't but know. yes, I, absolutely, as you say, it's an artificial construct of how we organize our communities, how we organize society, Precisely. right? Yeah. I To me, it sounds um, uh, interesting. And I, I just, I, I think it's, it's always good to challenge ourselves with these big ideas um, because I think we can never think big enough and then also see <clears throat> what is possible. Mm, um, to be honest, I haven't reflected so much yet about a borderless world, but rather about a borderless Europe <clears throat> yeah. to start well, somewhere. Well, we can start there. <laughs> yeah, to start somewhere and also about the future um, of nation states in Europe. Um, <clears throat> and I think coming back to the very beginning when you said, um, Uh, are you European? Are you German? Um, at this very moment, I think the uh, national identity is strong in people and it would be artificial to simply, because some people feel, have, feel like their European identity relapsed. I think it doesn't apply it to the majority of people and it would be artificial to simply say, um, we scrap it. Mm. <clears throat> But what I do think um, could happen Um, if we are open to it and in the end it only dep depends on us being open and being yeah, open for change and um, is that in a incremental process we are changing the functioning of the European Union um, we are uh, 
open to towards having a European constituency. Um, we are open towards having really uh, a European democracy that uh, represents us, where we have directly elected European representatives in the parliament. Um, we know them, we know who they are, um, we know who they represent, they represent the cultural and regional diversity of Europe in the European parliament. Mm. We, we might have a second chamber where <clears throat> regional aspects are taken into account. Um, yeah, maybe like something like a Senate where, um, you know, you, you have people where it's, it's, it's more about the, the, the regional part um, um, taken into account. And then uh, you have a European government that acts in the interest of all European people together. And if you look at such an image, I think then you don't need the nation state anymore because then we would be just at home in smaller communities. And I yeah, we're more imagine, like regions, regions, areas. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think if you if uh, if we are open to it, and if if you look at where we are today, then we my generation as as a generation that flies a lot around a lot or at least travels around a lot if you know flying mm -hmm. is not an option or also not um desired travels around a lot um has friends uh i i guess um in multiple countries is digitally connected um has a completely different approach towards work and life and how we how we manage both of it um and the intersection of it um <clears throat> and then we we live somewhere so we are we are more close to a local community and then we have our much broader community. So yeah. I think if you look at this, then it might get down to us having representation at a more local, at a, at a level that we can actually closely relate to because it affects us directly when we step out of the door um, yeah. and a level that um, represents us in a, in a wider sense. Yeah. I'm, the, I'm a bit envious of people like you living in Central Europe sometimes because it's you're so close to so so many of these other countries and it's so easy to with the Schengen area it's so easy to, to travel around to just within a few hours visit France, Belgium, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Germany, Switzerland. Well, Switzerland is yeah, it's part of the Schengen, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah, it's such so, a gift. So it's, it's really easy and and uh, Sweden is way up there and it's very big and it's, it takes a long time to travel down travel to other countries, but. Uh, but we still have it in the southernmost parts of Sweden, you know, Skåne, the southernmost region there, has a lot of contacts with Denmark. Well, now they've cl almost closed the border again because of Corona and then because of the mig mig migrant crisis, refugee situation, which is uh, sad. But anyway, uh, in principle, they have, they have a lot of connections uh, over the border there between Copenhagen and Malmö. So there is this regional thing even here. So it's, it's all over the place and it's, well, it's, there is the language thing, but I think in, in Central Europe, people are pretty good. In the border areas, they're pretty good at speaking languages on both sides of the border, aren't they? Um, yeah, I believe I mean, so. You're, I think you're a brilliant you... example, but, but I mean, even other people who haven't got that kind of education. Yeah, absolutely. I think if you look at, um, I mean, the Zutirol, um, I actually don't know what you call it in English. Um, so the northern uh, Italy bordering yeah, to Austria, the Germany. Tyrol, Tyrol, yeah, South. yeah, the Tyrol region. Um, um, in, it, yeah, between Italy and in, Austria. In Italy, it's uh, in Italian, it's Alto Adige. So, but yeah, I, 
They speak so German in Northern Italy. They, they speak, speak German, and and yeah, mm. exactly. And there we are. Um, I, I think at least that the team is now realizing it. We I just spoke with uh, the teams from that region um, two weeks ago, and they had the ambition to create a regional team that um, was really uh, organized cross border. So mm. currently, I mean. We also have to work in in the system that is there. So usually we have our city teams and they are connected nationally, but now we want to create this additional <clears throat> entity. Yeah. Of course, we will see how we integrate it in Volt and how we um, also make that shift ourselves within Volt, yeah, you know, thinking bigger picture, not just um, in national representation, but they organize themselves across border. And I think, Equally, um, thinking of friends who live uh, near the Dutch border, um, they they speak fluent Dutch. They feel they don't, you know, they, they don't have any cultural differences really to, no. to their neighbors no. who live next door. Um, yeah, I think this is really the the beauty of Europe, which makes me very yeah, excited. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. It, it's it shows that these national nation states are just constructs mental constructs yeah anyway. so a european vault now and then when you get a little bit older maybe in a few decades uh, you will be part of the global vault perhaps that would be we'll fun see. and especially because at the beginning we had some teams also um actually being active in america at the east coast uh, we then obviously focused on growth uh, in Europe, but I think the idea and our um, yeah core values, principles, and and the the general ideas that we stand for are not only valid for Europe. No, that's interesting. Fantastic. Well, I guess I can disclose now that I actually voted for Volt in the latest uh, elections to the European Parliament. So now that's said, been said. <laughs> cool. Really uh, great. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. So, Valerie Sternberg, thank you so much for being uh, a guest on the podcast show and good luck with your commendable cross-border politics project. Thank you so much, Anders. It was a real pleasure and I hope that my annoying cough and uh, dry throat today isn't uh, too much annoying for the listeners. Thank you. (laughs) 